I'd like you to imagine with me, if you would, a seaport wharf. Let's say during the days of colonial America. There walking past us is a young boy who is apprenticed to the master silversmith whose shop is located on the wharf. Our young apprentice has just delivered an order and he's heading back to his master's shop. And as he does so, we understand, of course, that he does not really earn money for his work, but rather just works in order to have the right to learn the master's craft. So the apprentice spends his days fetching water and stoking the fire and preparing molten silver. He runs errands and makes deliveries and takes orders. But his real joy is to watch the master artisan perform his craft. When he was first taken on as an apprentice, he would sneak glances over the master's shoulder to get a look at what he was doing. He'd watch as he took that molten silver and made belt buckles and service sets and silverware and the like, and he loved it. In time, as time is passing now in his apprenticeship, the wise silversmith is beginning to give him more responsibility, giving him some simple repair projects, grooming him to become a master silversmith. As he learns the secrets of the trade, the apprentice finds there is much he does not know. And so he will ask the master from time to time questions about the trade. Now on this particular day, he realizes with this silver set that he has, has delivered that there's a skill he doesn't know how to perform. And as he was heading back on his way back to the master's shop, he talked to another apprentice at another silversmith shop and found out that that apprentice had been taught this very skill by his master. Well, you can imagine what our apprentice is up to now as he takes off his hat and ducks into his shop. He wants to ask the master how to do this. There's something he doesn't know, and he longs to know it. And so as our young apprentice enters the shop, he is full of curiosity, and he is full of a sense of need. I think that illustrates for us what is happening with the apprentices, the disciples of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 11. I invite you there in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. The disciples have become seasoned apprentices by this point in time. They've been called to follow Jesus. They have left behind their occupations. They have left behind their homes and their families to certain events to a certain degree and in various events and they have come to learn of their master's craft as a servant of God they were disciples apprentices if you will in the care of souls apprentices in the walk of faith apprentices in spiritual formation and as the disciples watched the life of Jesus and learned from their master they became conscious over time of something in Christ's life which they needed to know. They needed a deeper knowledge of this practice. They watched Jesus minister. They watched him live his life, imagine. And they sensed a deep inadequacy. 
Now, that's really saying something for the disciples at this point. You remember what we've seen of their lives. Go back to chapter 9, if you will, before we get to chapter 11 and verse 46. Remember 9.46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Sensing deficiency, sensing inadequacy was not the forte of this group just yet. They were arguing about who was best, who was greatest, who was the greatest disciple. Beyond the pride issue that we deal with here, they had in fact experienced some tremendous success. Had they not, chapter 10 and verse 1, remember that after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of Him to every town and place where He was about to go. These individuals, we don't know, it seems they are in addition to the 12, but certainly with the same experience. Verse 17 of chapter 10, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So there is great success on the part of the disciples in learning the Master's craft of spiritual strength and power and and work in the lives of people. Yet there was one thing that the Master did that still made these proud disciples feel very inadequate. Can you imagine watching the life of Jesus day after day? Well, it seems from chapter 9, the way that the disciples took this is, we are followers of Jesus. We are the inner circle of the Messiah. Chapter 9.20, they had that perspective. They knew He was Messiah. And like our Master, we cast out demons. But you know what? When we watch and when we hear our master pray, we sense our inadequacy. There was one thing in their journeys with Jesus that these disciples knew, and that's that this man was a man of prayer. Luke has brought that to our attention. If I could take you back a little further, let's remember chapter 3 and verse 21. Luke Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. What would you have remembered about Jesus had you walked with Him? 3.21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened. Chapter 5 and verse 16. Chapter 5 and verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Chapter 6 and verse 12. Chapter 6 and verse 12. One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Chapter 9 and verse 18. 
9.18, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? Jesus was praying in private. Verse 28 of the same chapter, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up unto a mount, onto a mountain to pray. In chapter 11, the inadequacy of the disciples becomes too great to bear, at least for one, and I think probably speaking for all of the others. We read in chapter 11 and verse 1, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. This is a pattern. This is a way of life. He speaks to the Father. When he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now remember who these men are at this point. We're in the inner circle of the Messiah. We have powers over the kingdom of darkness. We love to debate among ourselves who's going to be greatest in the kingdom because we're pretty special. But here's some real honesty and some inadequacy that they sense. Lord, we need you to teach us to pray. This request assumes two things. First of all, a sense of spiritual inadequacy. We frankly need your help, Master. It assumes also, secondly, a lack of formal instruction on the part of Jesus. Apparently, to this point, his teaching has been primarily by example. They are comparing his teaching with the disciples' teaching and saying, they're getting the teaching. John the Baptist's disciples got the teaching. We need the teaching. Will you teach us to pray? Fair enough, the master prayer smith responds, beginning at verse 2. So let's listen in as Jesus starts, first with content. But before we even do that, I think it is important that I ask you, do you want to hear this? I mean, really? Now, I can imagine that sometimes in my life, and perhaps in yours even today, you're sitting there among the disciples of Christ, and one of them pipes up after Jesus has just prayed and said, Lord, teach us to pray, and you're saying, isn't he busy enough? We have to go into that. Is this really a time for a prayer seminar? Do we really need this kind of instruction? Bartholomew, just keep your mouth shut, or whoever it was that asked the question. If that's your response, you may as well leave right now. Because what Jesus is going to have to say here isn't going to accomplish anything in your heart and life. But I wonder if you would say in your heart, thank you Bartholomew or whoever it was for asking the question, because I really want to know that. Do you come here this morning and say, I need help with prayer. I do. And are we ever blessed? Because you know, for the next 30 or so minutes, we're going to listen to Jesus give the answer. Think about that for a while. He starts with content. 
as he gives us this instruction. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now before we analyze this prayer specifically, I'd like to just make a few comments generally about it. Jesus is not saying here that we should pray this prayer every time we pray. When you pray, always say, Our Father. Or we could add Matthew's words here, Which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We go through the whole prayer before we pray. That's the first thing that we need to say. Can you imagine how that would have worked for Peter when he was on the sea, walking out to Jesus. He's out in the waves and sees Jesus and sees he starts to drown in, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And before he got to thy kingdom come, he'd been there, right? I mean, it's, that's not how you pray. He prayed exactly what he should have prayed at that point. Lord, save me. And there's times when we should do the same. That's not what it means, obviously. Every time you pray, pray this. But it also does not, I don't believe, I don't think this is delivering liturgy to us. He's talking about thematic content here rather than rote memory. Pray this prayer ritualistically time after time after time in your own private life and in your church life. Now there's nothing wrong with doing that from time to time, but this is not the reason that Jesus gives it to us. I think there's several Proofs of that, but one and probably the strongest is just the fact that if this was given as a ritualistic prayer, how come Matthew doesn't agree with Luke? If Jesus wanted us to pray one prayer, to memorize it and pray it all the time, how come the two don't agree? The point is Jesus, I think, it, Matthew is in fact talking about a different time when Jesus gave the same kind of teaching and he changed the words around and said it different ways because it's not intended simply for liturgy, for ritual repetition, but is intended to give us themes, the content of prayer. In fact, Matthew starts where Jesus uh, quotes or, or gives this teaching. Uh, Matthew quotes Jesus as starting with, pray like this. Pray like this is the idea. So, as we read earlier, Matthew's account, we can put the two together and we can draw pieces from each and know that this was generally Jesus' teaching. Now, some of you, depending on the translation that you would have here with you today, you might find in the margin a number of additions to verses 2 through 4. Perhaps your translation has those additions right in the text or, or believes that that is what the original text would be. Let me just say very quickly... The two accounts, I don't believe, are taking place on the at the same exact time. I believe it's just common teaching. We don't have, uh, again, the uh, mass media, and so Jesus is moving from place to place and is teaching and saying the same thing over and over again. And I think Matthew records a different setting than does Luke here. What has happened, I believe... Uh, and some would debate this, I suppose. I, I know they would. But I believe that what has happened is the text in Luke is very brief. And so copyists in days following the original text, as they're copying down the text, tended to add to Luke what was found in Matthew. Now that's not a particular problem, because everything that Matthew said is in Matthew in any translation that's a fair, faithful translation. 
But if you wonder why it seems that some of the phrases are missing here, we can include the phrases in from Matthew, but I think really the tendency was for copyists to add these phrases because they're remembering the longer form in Matthew. It's simply that way. Having said that, then, we can add some of those ideas as I go through here today, but we'll stick largely with the way that Luke puts it, and you can look down at the margin for the additional phrases as we go through. I don't want to say any more about that uh, connection. We could talk at it, about it at great length, but I think, in fact, that what we have here is probably closer to or exactly what Luke actually wrote. Let's talk about some specific concepts here, then, as we look through this prayer. First of all, it starts with Father. Now, we've got to stop right there. And that could be a long series of sermons in and of itself. When you pray, say, Father. And you have to realize that's earth-shaking instruction. The theme of God's fatherhood is found in the Old Testament text but it is always used in reference to corporate Israel. There is no one in the Old Testament that you will find talking to God as Father. There is no evidence to this date and time of anyone in Judaism, any rabbinic tradition that speaks of God as my Father. The fatherhood of God, yes, over all of Israel, addressing God as Father, that's Jesus' idea, and it's unique. In fact, every prayer that Jesus offers, save one phrase where he is quoting the Old Testament, he always speaks to God as Father. And you know what he's saying here? Are you getting this? Are you listening? Jesus says you talk to him the same way. Father. It is a word of intimacy, as Pastor Pratt read earlier from Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. That's probably the word that Jesus originally used in the Aramaic. Remember, Jesus didn't probably speak Greek very often, if ever. He spoke Aramaic, and as he speaks Aramaic, he's probably using the word Abba, this word of endearment, this tender word of fatherly relationship. Father, and he says you use the same. I've told the story in this context before from William Barclay, who tells of a great Roman emperor who came back to Rome and enjoyed the fruit of victory, which was called a triumph. You would walk in procession with your troops and with the captured troops, and people would be burning incense, and the crowds would be cheering on the sides of the way. And this great emperor enters into Rome with this great triumph. And as he does, there's a raised platform there with the empress and his children there with her as they watch the emperor come in. And the youngest son of the emperor sees his father and he runs off of the stage and begins to burrow through the crowd. And a, a soldier grabs him and lifts him up in his arms and says, you can't go in there. Don't you know who that is? That's the emperor. And the young boy looks down at the soldier and says, he might be your emperor, but he's my father. If we could just feel, and I use the word meaningfully, if we could just feel for a moment that boy's place 
that is our privilege when we come before God in prayer. The one who created this universe is my Father. He is the judge. He is the king. He is the emperor of heaven. But he is my Abba. When you pray, say, Father. Father, hallowed be your name. The intimacy of addressing God as Father is tempered by this utter reverence, of the, the utter reverence of this first petition. Hallowed be thy name. To treat as unique and distinctive and holy. You want to know how to pray, disciples, says Jesus? Here is where you start the glory of God. Is that where you start? Is that where I start? Now there's days when we're in something like Peter's position and all we can say is, Lord, save me. But in His grace, we aren't usually found in the midst of a sea drowning. And the pattern of our lives in prayer ought to start here. God, glorify and magnify and exalt Your holy name. Treat it as distinctive and holy. This is where we start. We should be passionately jealous for God's glory to be seen and to be appreciated by others, ourselves included. I wonder if an atheist listened in on your prayers for one week. Would that atheist say, you are jealous? You are passionately jealous for the glory of God. Christian, we need to pray bigger prayers. And I just encourage you and challenge you as I challenge my own soul this morning. Let's pray big prayers. Hallowed be your name. Holy and distinct and unique. And how is God's name hallowed ultimately in this world of redemption that He has brought into being? It is in that next phrase, Your kingdom come. As Matthew puts it, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. When Jesus Christ returns to earth to establish His kingdom, the whole world will hallow Christ's name. When Jesus returns, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. From sea to shining sea, every corner of this planet, the name of Jesus Christ will be praised. If you hallow God and you long for His glory to be seen, then you want that day to come. And you pray that it will. Pray like that. I wonder, did you pray one time this week? for the kingdom of God to come. If we don't pray for Jesus to come back, and we don't pray for the kingdom of God to be established on this earth, then we need to ask what in the world we're praying for. 
This should dominate our attention. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. We then move from this glorious and large prayer to the mundane and the simple. Give us each day our daily bread. From the sublime and majestic, from the grand scheme of redemptive history to the most basic of individual needs. And let's admit it, this is a little bit tough for us as Americans, this prayer, isn't it? Give us this day our daily bread. We're surrounded by food. You can go into the poorest places in this nation and just look around and look at body shapes and you'll know we aren't starving to death. Nobody. I'm sure there's a couple people somewhere that perhaps are, but we're not starving to death as a nation. And So for us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, take some effort. What's it going to take from wealthy Americans? It's going to take a sense that everything that I receive comes from the hand of God, whether I see it or not. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us, the NIV has gone out of its way once again here to help us out. The idea literally is forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us, but the idea is those who have sinned against us and our sins. We seek the forgiveness of God. The idea here is not, I don't think, that we earn the forgiveness of God by forgiving others. The idea is rather that a genuinely repentant heart is a forgiving heart. We can never sever our relationship with God from our relationship with people. Remember what Jesus just taught, in, as, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. What is it? Love God with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself. We can never divide those two. If I am unwilling to forgive my neighbor, I have no basis of even beginning to come to God and ask him to forgive me. I think we see this in daily life. I have no problem seeing that. If I have... One of my sons doesn't forgive another, and that first son comes to me and asks me for forgiveness. I think it would be very natural and right to say, listen, before you and I talk about our relationship, you need to talk about relationship with your brother, right? That only makes sense. And that's all I think that God is saying here. If you aren't right with others and you're not willing to forgive, don't ring my phone number right now on that point. You've got a job to do. And we'll talk about forgiveness then. Do not lead us into temptation. God never tempts us with sin, James 1.13, but you know, God sovereignly permits us to be tempted. And this prayer takes that sovereign right seriously and labors with the God of the universe for moral protection. Apathy concerning sin is evidenced by lethargy in prayer. Apathy about sin is evidenced by lethargy in prayer. We need to be praying for our own sanctification. We need to be praying for the sanctification of this church, that God would not lead us into temptations that would take us away from Him. They're everywhere. And we need to pray for His grace. A hatred for sin is evidenced by petitions for divine protection. Do you labor in God with God in prayer for holiness in your life. So what do we see here in these brief words? We see familial intimacy, Father. We see a, what we could call a doxological jealousy. In other words, we are passionate about the glory of God. 
We see submissive dependence. Give us bread. Forgive us our sins. Give us moral protection. That's what we are to pray. That's the content. Just giving us themes that we can hang things on. Now, Jesus moves to method. How should we pray? That's what we should pray. How should we pray? How do we go about this? How should we see this relationship with our Father? Verse 5, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. These would be little handheld loaves. Because, verse 6, a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Jesus comes here with a parable and teaches us about persistent boldness before the throne of God. We see the parable in these first few verses. Let me finish there with verse 7. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. So there's, there's the setting. The primary comparison of the parable is, is what? That this is key to understanding it. I think it is not between God and the sleepy neighbor, although there's a connection there, but I think the primary emphasis here is between the one who's asking and the disciples. Notice how he puts it there in verse 5. Suppose one of you, who's you? Well, you in the parable is the guy who's just received this middle-of-the-night visitor. And we've got to do a little bit of a, of a bridge building here to get back into that world. I mean, for us, you know... Yell down if you have to to the guy down the steps, flip on the light and get into the fridge, help yourself, lay on the couch and I'll see you in the morning or something. There is no cell phone here. There's no refrigeration. People would make bread one day at a time and when that bread was gone, they wouldn't have any bread until the next day. So this visitor isn't calling ahead and saying, reserve a place for me, or I'll be there at such and such an hour. I, I, you know, I'm in a traffic jam here. It looks like it's going to be midnight. The guy has no clue this visitor's coming, and he comes in the middle of the night, and there's no electricity to flip on a switch. You've got to light a lamp, and probably the, what would be the norm for them, you're all living in one room. Their houses were little rooms and there'd be a platform built up on the one side where all the family would lay down for the night kind of get them a little bit off of the ground and if i get up here says this guy in the dark you can hear him whispering loudly you know people who can whisper loudly but if i get up here i'm gonna wake up the kids leave me alone this is not a good time but the guy just keeps after it the door is locked. My children are in bed. But notice what Jesus says. But I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is a friend, his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Do you know anybody who's really obnoxious when other people are sleeping? Do you know those certain souls? You know, they get up in the morning and it's like no one else on earth is there. I mean, everybody's sleeping and they're just banging around and making noise and, you know, I'm up, the world should be up. Or those people on the other end of the scale. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's late at night and I have at least one night a week that I'm up way later than I ought to be. One, two in the morning, it seems like, working on writing. And, you know, there's this kid that comes by up the street every Saturday night, it seems like. And uh, this, uh, 
radio's blaring like it's the middle of the day. It's, I, I don't mind it. I'm up, you know, but uh, it's, I, I'm going to someday be out there and meet him and wave and say, we need to get to know each other. We're the only people awake on this street. But it's just like nobody's alive. Radio's blaring and hauling up the hill there, just ripping his car up in the middle of the night. You know people like that? That's obnoxious. Right? You should be considerate of people that are sleeping. You should be kind and thoughtful about them. You know what Jesus is telling us here? Don't worry about that when it comes to prayer. You have a father who never sleeps and never slumbers. You can come anytime, in any state or form, and you can talk to him. This guy was upset about this obnoxious man that was going to wake up his whole place. But what does Jesus take? How does he take this parable? That's how he takes it, verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Boldness. Verse 8, the Greek word speaks of shamelessness. This guy's obnoxious in the middle of the night. But it is that boldness, it is that persistence, it is that unwillingness to worry about the circumstances that brings him to get through to his neighbor. He gets the bread, he goes back and feeds his friend, and they all go back to bed. Jesus says you do the same when it comes to prayer. You keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Do you see what he's saying? God is your Father. If you know Him as Savior, He is your Father. You can wake Him up. In fact, He never sleeps. So go to Him with boldness and shamelessness and keep on praying. The promise in verse 10, for everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. This is not a guarantee that whatever we pray, will, God will answer just as we pray it. Loving parents say no to their children, and God says no to His from time to time. But it is to say that persistence and bold contending with God is good. And he loves it. Lazy Pascal said this. You've got to listen to this. You have to listen to most of what he said. It was a sharp cookie. He had some great statements. And he said this. God gave us prayer to give us a taste of what it means to be a creator. You can chew on that mouthful the rest of the day, I guarantee you. That's good. Now, it can be taken the wrong way. Very much taken the wrong way in our context in which we imagine and create our world. That's not what Pascal is saying. God gave us prayer to give us a taste of what it means to be a creator. 
What he is saying is God invites us to come alongside of him and contend with him for his glory and to pray for him for our sanctification and to seek his face so that in prayer we join God in what he's doing as he brings about righteousness in this world. In the right sense of a word, prayer makes me a creator. So how are we to pray with persistent boldness before the throne of God? To intercede before Him, to contend for His glory and to provide our needs. With persistent boldness we come before the throne. Secondly, we come with confident faith in God's goodness. Persistent boldness, confident faith in God's goodness. That's verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Matthew brings out another illustration. They ask for bread. Is the father going to give them a rock? Obviously, no one does that. We can find somebody somewhere, I suppose, in their twisted way, but that, that even evil people Don't do that to their children. What's the point? Verse 13 is the point. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus believed in depravity, didn't He? If you then, though you are evil. But the greater point, of course, is if that's what you can do with your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is a very challenging theological point to be made in verse 13. What does He mean, give the Spirit? Give the Holy Spirit? Some would argue from the fact that there's no article here. It is give Holy Spirit, which many times the article is not found there when it refers to the Holy Spirit in the Bible, so this isn't a slam dunk. But it does read, give Holy Spirit. So Some have argued that this is a prayer for the powerful spiritual unction that the Spirit gives to Jesus. You pray and God will give you the same. A sense of power and a sense of the work of God in your life. Well, it's not very far off of referring to actually the Holy Spirit because that's what the Holy Spirit, in fact, will do in the life of the believer. But more likely, we should look to the Old Testament background here. Isaiah 44 and verse 3 lays out this promise and this hope for God's people. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. We find in Joel 2 as well the reference to this new covenant and the coming of the Spirit. Now the disciples have no idea how this is going to look. They have no clue of what's going to happen at Pentecost after Jesus dies and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But they do know this promise of the Old Testament that God will give His people the Spirit. And so I think Jesus is inviting them to pray for this good gift of the Holy Spirit's presence in their life, which we can go back to that anarthrist, that non-article view, and that is going to work here too. Because as the Spirit of God is given to us, we have an unction from God. We have a sense of His presence in our life. So pray for these good gifts. Do you see the good gifts He's talking about? I mean, it's important that Aunt Sally's hip gets healed. 
That's a good prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. But this is a lot bigger than that, isn't it? This is pray that God's spiritual presence would indwell my life. Pray that, and you know what? Your Father loves to give answers to those kinds of prayers. He's not a begrudging Father. You don't pray to Him, God, fill my heart and my life with the person of Jesus Christ. Fill me with the Spirit of God. Do your work in my heart. And God says, I'm going to give you a scorpion. I'm going to give you a snake. That's not who God is. He loves to give good gifts to his children who ask. So keep on asking. You noted noted that, didn't you? He didn't say, ask once, and then leave him alone. He said, keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. And we will need to do that to the end of our road every day until he takes us home. Keep on pursuing God in prayer, in dependent faith, in the goodness of God to give all things that pertain to life and godliness. Matthew even just put it that way. He will give good things to those who ask. But we must be people a prayer. And if we follow Jesus, we will be people of prayer. God invites us. God wants us to join Him actively in the redemptive work that He is performing in our lives. And He wants us to contend in prayer for His glory on this earth. As an apprentice of Jesus Christ, as His disciple, do you pray? Do you know how to pray? Do you pray as Jesus taught us to pray? Do you see our privileged responsibility of prayer? One of my favorite stories about our history here as a church was a a new believer, young man, way back in the early days of my coming here that came to Christ the Savior. Honest guy, fun guy to be around. He just enthused with having come to know the Lord as Savior. I was with him on a Wednesday night. We were praying together, and I prayed. And then I asked him if he'd like to pray. I said, you don't need to, but if you'd like to, feel free to pray, and I'll give it a try. So he started to pray, and he got about two sentences in, and there's this long, uncomfortable silence. And he looks up at me, and with great honesty says, I need help. I thought, that's good. That is really good. He's not going to try to fake it. He's going to say, I need help. Do you know what it would be like if you came here on a Wednesday night and your prayer partner was Jesus Christ? You know, I think we would all, if we were honest, pray about one sentence and stop and look him in the face and say, I need help. Well, here's his help. This is how you pray. You trust in my goodness. You keep at it to the end of your life. And this is what you pray. You pray for my glory. And you pray in dependence upon me as your Father. And you call me Father.
if you know me through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has paid the penalty of your sin, and you've come to trust in his work, and you know that he's risen from the dead and has given you life, then you come to me and call me Father. And you work alongside of me. You bring the world of redemption into being with me through your prayers. Do you long for unreached people on this world, in this, on this earth, to hear the name of Jesus Christ and to rejoice in who he is? Then you have a prayer project. Do you long for the righteousness and goodness of Jesus to pervade this earth? Then pray that he'd come back. Do you have daily needs? Do you sense that you have daily needs? Pray to God, our provider, Jehovah Jireh. Do you need the forgiveness of God this morning because of your sin? Confess your sins in prayer. Forgive those who have sinned against you and He'll grant your request. Do you want to live in victory over sin? Then assault your sin with petitions to God. Do you long for your children to love the Lord with all their heart? Do you long for your home to be a place of spiritual prosperity? Do you long for this church to be such a place? We have a prayer project. Learn to intercede for your church home and your family. Do you long for the Holy Spirit's presence in your life and in the life of this assembly? Let's pray big prayers. And may the indictment of the Apostle James never characterize this church or your life. They have not because they ask not. If you want it and God wants it, ask Him. And keep asking Him, because the timing might not be right. And you may not see it just right yet, but keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking and bring it about through your prayers as He works to bring glory to His name. That's what the apprentices of the Master do. They contend for the glory of God and they depend upon Him for every need. Let's pray. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. We extol you, our Father, and we plead with you to glorify your name through the ends of this world, by the coming of Christ, by providing our needs as the great provider, and by giving to us every good gift. We know that you have in Christ. We know that there is a difference between the way that we pray and the way that the disciples prayed. The Spirit has been poured out upon us in salvation. We thank you for his presence, but Lord, we want to be people who are spirit-filled, people who are characterized by the Spirit of God, characterized by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
please do that in our hearts. And may we never quit asking. Should there be one, any among us, who know you not as personal Savior and Lord, I pray, dear God, with all of my heart, I come to you and I plead with you. Show them that you can be their Abba, Father. Show them the way through Jesus. Open the gates. Open their eyes. And may they embrace you as Father. May they realize that the prayer that they can pray is that your name would be hallowed and their sins forgiven. Thank you for forgiven sin. And I pray that we'd all seek it, even now, quiet of this moment. Bring glory, I pray, to your name, through Christ. Amen.